Amen. Please be seated. And as you do so, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude. Uh, This morning, we will be looking at verses 8 to 16. And this passage can also be found on the insert inside of your bulletin, along with a brief outline of today's message. You know, the middle section of the book of Jude, it it really flows in, in three major parts. The heart of his short but important letter is a warning. It's a warning against false teachers, sometimes called the apostate. Um, Jude, his favorite word for them is simply ungodly. Uh, But these are people who have crept in, according to his own words, to the church. They look like they belong in the church. They look like everyone else. They say the right things. They appear to have it all together, and yet, over time, their hearts and their actions prove them to be false. Even worse, uh, apostate's not just someone who um, says or does the wrong thing, but they're a particular type of person who also wants to share that with others, to spread that message. They, they become evangelists of sinful teaching if you will, and we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. But that's what makes them dangerous for the church, and it's why Jude uh, preaches against them. It's why um, a lot of this we heard when we went through the book of 2 Peter. Uh, Peter warns against them. And this morning, Jude, in in this message, this is really our third Sunday looking at his warning against the apostate, um, he is going to teach us about the consequences of their actions. He's going to show us why they are dangerous and why we should um, check our own hearts and check our own minds because they don't get to have a free pass here. They, they don't get to follow this way. They don't get to uh, do what they do without consequence. Sin always has a cost. And that's an important reminder for us today. Maybe you're in a position, you know the Lord, you trust the Lord, uh, you, you rightly understand the, the, um, to guard your mind and heart against false teaching, and so you find yourself saying, well, I won't be an apostate. That's fine, but we're all still sinners. And it's important, even as we discuss this particular type of sinner, that we don't lose sight of all sin comes at a cost. All sinful actions require payment, the judgment of the Lord. And so I encourage you as we, we hear God's Word this morning and we think through these things that you don't lose sight of that, uh, that every sin comes at a cost. That being said, let's read our passage this morning. I want to read for us starting in um, the book of Jude, verse 8, and then I will read through verse 16. Yet in like manner... These people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand." And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. 
as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Difficult words for us this morning, but God's Word, His promise is that while the grass may wither and the flower may fade, His Word will stand forever. And just like the water that falls from heaven to nourish the ground, so too will His Word go forth today and provide for us the nourishment and life that you and I need. Would you please bow with me as we go to the Lord in prayer and ask His wisdom and blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today because we need you. We need your truth. We need your wisdom. We need your word. We need to understand. That can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord. So we ask that through your Spirit, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might hide these truths in our hearts, lest we sin against you. Father, these are indeed challenging words. And so I pray that you would help us to contemplate them soberly. But may we do so not as people without hope, but people who trust in a Messiah. As Jesus Christ is Lord, Jesus Christ is sovereign, Jesus Christ rules, and Jesus Christ will come again to exact judgment on those who persecute His people and persecute His church. I pray for your wisdom and your guidance this day. In Christ's name, amen. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you knew, you absolutely knew that something was not the right thing to do and that it was going to have serious consequences, and yet you did it anyway. <laughs> I would dare say, if I talked to all of you, we would admit that at some point in our lives, we've had those moments. We knew it was a bad decision. We knew there was going to be payment that had to be paid, and yet we've leaned in when we should have backed out. I had such a moment recently, um, as recent as our trip to Monterey, Mexico. One of our team leaders from Redeemer in Overland Park, upon getting off the plane, joyfully told uh, the team leaders in Mexico that he loved spicy food, that it was one of his favorite things in the world, was spicy food. And the local pastor's wife took that as a challenge. And so at dinner, for every night following that, she brought a bag of peppers. She brought a bag of peppers and in increasing spiciness to test this American's statement. 
And to his credit, the first night, we watched him eat a habanero pepper all the way to the stem in one bite. And I was impressed. I've never seen anyone do that, nor have I done that. He got a little flush in the face, but he took it in stride. And then there was the second night. You see, here's the problem of this. I, too, like spicy food. I just don't tell people that I do. I certainly don't brag about it. The second night, two habaneros were placed on the table, along with a couple of peppers that they claimed were serranos, one green and one red. Now, if you look up the Scoville ratings, serranos are nowhere near as spicy as habaneros. They're only slightly above jalapeno. And I secretly was kind of offended. This guy was being called the pepper guy. Like, I can do this. Why does he get to be the pepper guy? I can eat peppers. I'm not scared of spice. And so while he's looking at these habaneros, thinking about how he's going to eat them, I grab one of the serranos, the green one, and take a bite of it about two-thirds of the way up the pepper. And I sit and I smile at him and go, there's nothing to it. This is a piece of cake. So he grabs the other one, and he eats it again to the stem. But something went wrong. (laughs) As soon as the pepper entered his mouth, my mouth went numb. Not only did my mouth go numb, my tongue started swelling. Not only did my tongue started swelling, I started sweating. And things were getting a little woozy. And I ate the green one. He ate the red one, which if you know your, your plants, it has been on the vine a little bit longer. Uh, and then his eyes about rolled back in his head. He went bloodshot in his eyes, something I've never in my life seen something happen before. I'm talking red streaks in his eyes. There's a debate to this day amongst the mission team. Was he crying or sweating? We don't know. He got uncontrollable hiccups, and it looked like he was going to faint. And, of course, that night had to be the night that there was no dairy products in the building. And so we had 15 minutes to contemplate the consequences of our actions. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring this up, while that's a silly story, a lot of people treat sin the same way. A lot of people look at a situation, look at an action, look at something to do or not to do, and they skip the part of the reasoning that says there's going to be a cost for this. There's going to be pain, and there's going to be heartache, and there's going to be difficulty. And they go straight to, but how cool would I look if I do it? And that's in fact what what Jude is warning against in our text. Many times people want control power, status, and recognition, and ignore or don't care about the consequences of said actions. And again, Jude is talking particularly about apostate or false teachers, so teachers who are in the church teaching a message against or contrary to the church. That's a much greater consequence than the 15 minutes of heat and pain There are eternal consequences to their actions. And because of this, Jude gives us four warnings today. Four consequences of willingly living in rebellion. And we're going to consider each one of these to challenge our own hearts, to warn us, and also to give us signs to look out for in others. Each of these consequences are worth taking their time considering. First, 
con- the consequence that the apostate will reject authority. Next, the apostate will walk in error. Thirdly, the apostate will lead falsely. And then finally, the apostate will ultimately emphasize themselves. Each of these are consequences of sinful action. And so we'll look at each one, warning our own hearts, as I just said, and preparing us to deal with it if we see it in our midst. And let's look first at the consequence of rejecting authority. And it's important to remember, um, I've said this, but I'm, I'm going to overemphasize it this morning. The sin of apostasy doesn't come from ignorant people. You don't accidentally stumble into apostasy. You don't accidentally find yourself knowing the truth of God and then denying it either outright or subversively. There has to be a willful intention taking place. You know, Jude calls out, calls, says uh, this as much in verse 4. He calls this group apostate or false teachers or ungodly. There's a lot of words for them. They're people who have crept into the church. Again, snuck in. They, they've made their way in. And they pervert the grace of God. Now, you can't pervert something if you don't know what it is. And so they have at some level an understanding of God's grace to the degree that they can then twist it to their own ends and their own desires. And so this is a a particular group of people that are being intentional, that are being purposeful, and are trying to hurt others. Let's let's be clear here. There's no honest motives about it. And really what this stems from, and and Jude's first point, is this really comes most of the time from a lack of respect, a lack of submission to authority. It's a a desire to place oneself as the highest authority. It's a desire to say that I'm in control, I'm in charge, I am who matters, and no one else does. It doesn't matter what happens to everyone else as long as what happens to me is what I want. Jude summarizes this whole section by calling these people, these people rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Relying on their dreams, that means they don't listen to and trust the Word of God. They trust in their own visions alone. They defile the flesh. We've talked about that before. That's um, sexual misconduct. They reject the authority and the leadership of the church, and they blaspheme angelic creatures. They've trusted their own wisdom over and against the wisdom of God. Now, we've been in Jude now for three weeks. You'll recognize this pattern here. He makes a point and then just overwhelms you with examples. He, and you will see that this morning. There's at least like 12 to 14 biblical examples today um, from the Old Testament and, and from uh, moments in history uh, to make his points. And he starts with a particular example, and that's the example of Michael engaging in this conflict with Satan over the body of Moses. Now, let me give you my caveat from the start, and please hear me when I say this. There is no biblical record of this event ever taking place. The best we can do is a non-biblical book called The Assumptions of Moses which describes this legal battle, if you will, between Satan and Michael over the body of Moses. Now, 
If you were with us earlier in the series, you know that Jude also makes allusions to the book of Enoch, another non-biblical apocryphal book. So just like I said with Enoch, I now say with the assumptions of Moses, they're not part of the canon. So if you go home and you're curious and you want to read them, and I think you can, I think that's fine, just know they don't carry the weight that God's Word does. They rightly tell us the beliefs, the opinions, and the views of the people during their time, but they should be read as that and not as the authoritative Word of God. But two things to follow that up. One, Jude uses it, he references it, because his original audience would have been familiar with these stories. It would have been something that they would have recognized, and so he speaks out of a place um, of familiarity with his original audience. Two, these books may not be a part of the Bible, but Jude is. Jude wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his book, his letter, although oddly contested, one of the last ones entered into the New Testament, is a part of the Bible. And so if he says it, and he says it by the Lord's authority, know that it happened. Know that it is true. And know that it is beneficial. Put it simply, Jude is not lying. Now, I fully understand this puts us in an uncomfortable position. You may want to know more about this, and you're not going to hear it from me, because I don't know more about this. But we need to trust God, trust God's Word, we need to trust that He knows what He's doing, and we need to trust that His plan is good. And so, while we have this unusual story, I cannot tell you more about it, but I can tell you this. I know with almost absolute certainty the point that Jude is trying to make. So we're going to focus on that, recognizing that this is a challenging section of Scripture. Look at what it says. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they don't understand. They're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Now, what's the point being made, and how does it deal with apostasy? Michael, very well, we know it through the biblical account, could have been the, one of the highest-ranking angels. And we know that in the book of Revelation, and I think it's also talked about in Hebrews. He had a position of status. He had a position of authority. And he had the ability to speak as one of God's messengers. However, did you catch how he addressed Satan? Someone who was wrong, who was talking incorrectly, and was not in a position of authority, a position of power, or a position to speak on behalf of God. Michael did not presume on his own authority. What did he say? The Lord rebuke you. Michael submitted his, himself to God to God's authority, to God's power, to God's wisdom, and to God's might. He did not say, I rebuke you. He said, the Lord rebuke you. And this is precisely what the false teachers were not doing. They were not yielding to the Lord. They were not submitting to Him and to His leadership and to His reign and to His rule. They were either taking the Lord's name in vain or they were speaking and presuming on themselves. And this is a very dangerous position. It's a very dangerous position for people in the church. There's a reason that we pray. When we pray, we do so in Jesus' name. 
There's a reason that I read from and teach from the Word of God. It's the same reason I always invite you and encourage you to open your Bibles and follow along with me. I'm prone to error, for I am a sinner. And even worse, if I were ever to decide to lead you astray, heaven forbid that take place, you are at my mercy unless you yourself have access to the truth. We have to be very careful with what authority we speak. And even as, as a messenger or mouthpiece of God, and, and the role that you have called me to as your minister, I can only offer to you that which the Lord has offered to me. But Satan didn't do it. Uh, Michael did. He submitted himself to the Lord. And we're very careful here that we too submit ourselves in that way. And this has so, the practical applications are abound. Um, when we recognize the authority of the Lord and, and the role He's placed us in and, and the authority He gives us in that role, it will affect how we um, act as workers in the workplace. It will affect how we relate to our spouses in marital relationships. It will um, affect how we relate to our children. It will affect how we relate in church offices. All of the relationships that we find ourselves in, when we rightly understand God's authority and uh, the authoritative structures we've been placed in, we're able to rightly lead in those areas. Because don't we know, I know you all know this, when, when authority goes wrong, the ride gets rough, doesn't it? The boat gets rocked, conflict arises, problems happen. Those of you uh, that, that work in larger organizations, you know that when you get someone that doesn't know what they're doing or doesn't really care, doesn't that mess things up? And because they're higher up in the production line, it affects everything after it. That's what the false teachers were doing. They were taking positions of authority they had no right to take. They were presuming on their own name, and they were negatively affecting all those after them that were following them, that were led astray, uh, that were taught that you don't have to do as God says. You don't have to listen to him. You don't have to listen to his teaching. He's not really accurate and right when he says this or says that. And so really, it, 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 this is so important to understand that, that false teachers, that apostate, they start there. They start with a, a twisting of authority. And what does that lead to? What's the, what's the natural consequence of that? Well, a, a, a breach in, in authority will always then lead to error, into bad practice, into mistakes. And we see that in our second section. You know, Jude concludes verse 10 by, by saying these people are like unreasoning animals. They don't do what they should do because they're like unreasoning animals. Instead, they act instinctively. I knew I could get it in here. I, I've been trying since Sunday school. Imagine a bat. And imagine a bat that just wants to be a bat. It doesn't know that it's disrupting and disturbing absolutely everyone. It doesn't know that we're all kind of in a panic, and even now in the back of my mind, if that thing lands on me, you're going to see some moves you've never seen out of me before. That bat just wants to be a bat. Fly and eat and sleep, reproduce, like God programmed it to do. It's an animal. It, it follows its, its instincts. It follows its nature. It doesn't reason like human beings do. It does not contemplate right or wrong. It does as it has been commanded by God. 
that's an interesting thought and a sermon topic of another time. We as humans, we're often less holy than the animalistic creatures because they're still doing what God told them to do and we rebel. But we'll talk about that in another sermon. But Jude concludes, Jude looks at these people and he, he looks at their practice and he says, woe to them, which is a statement meaning great sorrow or distress on their behalf. I am hurting because of these people, for these people. And then he turns to give us three Old Testament examples of how when, you, when, when authority gets broken, error follows. And it follows in a progressive nature. The more you live in this, the, the, the more bold you become and, and the more destructive you become. And so he gives us this, this tiered list of Old Testament stories of how apostasy will lead to error. Let's look at this progression. He starts with Cain. Now, Cain is interesting, isn't he? He had anger problems. He had something wrong with his heart so that when he gave an offering, it wasn't accepted by God. It's likely because he didn't give of the first fruits. He didn't give of the best that he had, where his brother did. It was so troubling that God himself spoke to him, said, Cain, be careful. The devil is at the door. Your sin is, is about to come out. It's about to be acted upon. And if you don't take a hold of it, it will consume you. So he was of the people of God. He heard the truth from God. And then he acted on his impulse. He knew what was right. He had heard the truth, and yet he acted impulsively, killing his brother, casting himself. And if you remember back to our study of Genesis, not only him, but generational sin. For generation after generation after generation, the people of Cain are known as murderous people to the point that their, their um, identity is just that. Right before the flood, we know that their family tree is one who takes joy in murder. This is what it looks like to fall into error. He didn't submit to God. He sinned against God. He sinned against his brother. And then we look to Balaam, and we look to the escalation there. Balaam was a prophet. Balaam, as a prophet, was commanded to instruct the people of God. He was instructed and commanded to um, proclaim that which is true. He, he should have had some training and some background in the truth, educated in it. But Balaam's sin or Balaam's error, he rebelled against God. But he takes it a step further than Cain. He rebels against God and then tries to convince others to rebel too. It's not enough that he wants to sin against God, that he wants to reject God's authority, but he wants to convince others to join in with him. And so we see this escalation of rejecting authority. Um, we see that you find the place that it's not enough that you're a sinner, but you want others to be sinners. And then we get to the rebellion of Korah. Numbers 16, wandering. Korah knew the truth. Korah had been taught the truth by Moses, by God, had been rescued by the hand of God, again and again. And so, knew the truth, rejected the truth. But then we see the escalation. 
Korah then encouraged others to reject God and reject God's teaching. It wasn't enough that, that they knew what was right and chose not to do it. They want others to do it. But then we see the ultimate escalation. It wasn't enough that, that Korah knew what was right and chose not to do it. It wasn't enough that Korah encouraged others to um, reject God and reject God's teaching. But Korah is known for Korah's rebellion. So Korah then raises up people to assault the people of God, to dethrone Moses and to challenge God for God's rule and for God's reign, saying, we know what is best and you are wrong. You are unfit for office. And we know who was right in that. If you go and look at number 16, God causes an earthquake which opens up the ground which destroys every single one of Korah's followers immediately. An in-time judgment from God for this rebellion. But that's how sin goes. That's, that's how apostasy happens. You, you, you break God's law. You're not satisfied with that, so you seek to teach others and educate others about it, and you're not satisfied with that. So then you turn it into an, an assault against God, God's word and God's people. When someone decides they know better against God, they will act on those desires. And we see this all the time. Again, you can think of um, very outspoken atheists in the world today. You know, there's, a, there's a, a joke in our circles that say it's two important statements you have to make to be an atheist. One, I don't believe in God, and two, I hate Him. Think about that, because it's true. Why do they make such a fight to disprove God and disprove His theology and show that He is false if they don't think He exists in the first place? They know He exists. That's where you end up. You, you end up hating God and hating the people of God, so you, you wage war against the truth. You live in error. And before we even go on, I, I don't want to dwell too heavily on uh, the, the sin of the apostate without encouraging us. Jude is very confident. Peter was very confident. God's judgment will come. God's judgment will come for the sinner. God's judgment will come for those that reject Him, reject His teaching, and seek to harm the church. We will all stand before God in judgment. Let's be clear, each and every one of us, and give an account of our lives. But while the, the, the apostate and their condition and, and the danger they, they um, promote is real, let's not forget, especially when we read about Korah's rebellion, that it gets to the point the Lord says, enough. He opens the ground and swallows them. And so take heart, dear Christian. There, there's more to be said, but I just I want to pause just real quick and, and get you there um, before we, we look at some of the other dangers. And so as we've already been talking about, and it, it's stated there in our third point, that, that progression that you reject authority, you live in error, you will also teach it, and you will teach it or lead falsely. We admit that those who are apostate, those who are living in this way, are not content with their own self-destructive beliefs and anti-biblical teaching. They want others to practice it well. Why? It's a whole lot easier to feel better about your sin if everyone else around you is sinning in the same way. It's a little easier to stomach it if you're not the only one doing it. 
even from the basic mindset and idea of, well, at least if I'm going to get in trouble, we're all going to get in trouble together. And to demonstrate this, Jude launches into another string of examples. Um, this is one of those passages, I, you know, I, I thought we could preach Jude in about two sermons. You really could do this in about 12 weeks if we really took time to dig into each of these points. But, but Jude here describes this, this, this idea of false teaching, this idea of false leadership, um, almost poetically. They're hidden reefs at your love feast. They feast with you without fear. They're shepherds feeding themselves. They're waterless clouds swept along by wind. They're fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead. They're uprooted. They're wild waves of the sea. They cast up the foam of their own shame. They're wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Let's think about some of these examples quickly. They're like hidden reefs. You think your boat is safe. You think your journey is safe. You think it's okay to travel across these waters, and yet they wait under sharp and pointed to tear and to break and to harm. Everything looks calm on the surface, but living in sin, it, it's never what it's cracked up to be. It, it never is as good as it appears to be. It's never as satisfying They're shepherds feeding themselves. And what a harsh judgment. You have a job. You have a role. You have a status. You're a shepherd. What do shepherds do? They shepherd sheep. Hence the name, shepherd. Care for sheep. But instead of caring for the sheep, they're eating. And you get the sense that they're eating the sheep's food. So what the sheep need, the nourishment and the care and the watchfulness that they need, the shepherds are instead taking in themselves. Well, then what happens to the sheep? They die. This is what it's like to live in this sin. This is what it's like to live this way. You'll starve yourself. You'll die. And those that claim to watch over you, those that claim to care for you, will turn against you because they care about themselves. They prey on hurting people. They care about status and identity and excess. Jude calls them waterless clouds. Again, what's the purpose of a cloud other than to provide rain? Now, don't dig into that one too deep. I know there's other purposes for clouds. But you see a cloud that should water, should provide rain, and yet it doesn't. Nothing falls. And you end up with an earth much like we are t these days. I know if you've tried to water your grass recently or uh, cut your grass, it, it needs water. It's hungry for water. It, it, it's getting that crack, that yellow, and, and, and all that, that comes along with it in this time of the year. And you look up and you see that cloud, and you're like, oh, it's coming, refreshment's coming, and then it passes on by. That's what these false teachers are like. They, they look like they're nourishing. They look like they're blessing. They look like they are beneficial, and they pass us on by. He calls them fruitless trees. Again, what's the point of a tree that bears no fruit? Jesus cursed a few trees for that purpose. They have no life. He calls them twice dead. They don't, even, they don't bear fruit, and their roots are bad. They're not even good at being a tree. They don't provide fruit, and they're not a real tree. They're dead. And then I like this when he calls them wandering stars. Um, historically, you use stars to chart your course. But if the stars are moving, how can you know where you're going? How can you have certainty? How can you have peace? How can you go in any direction correctly 
if they're a moving target. You can't. Again, Jude kind of blasts us here with these, these analogies, these examples. I know I wish we had time to dig into them deeper, but know that they're a moving target. They reject God's authority. They walk in error. They teach it to others. And that teaching is false. It's not good. It's not a blessing. And then at the end of the day, Jude concludes here, at the end of the day, we realize false teachers only care about themselves. It's why they're bad teachers. It's why they live in error. It's why they reject God. And Jude gives us this prophecy from Enoch. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of His holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. For the sake of time, let me just say this. Did you hear the repetition there? What are they? Ungodly. They're ungodly people. And let me ask you this today, because this is a very important question. Who would you rather place your trust in? Ungodly people with bad practices that can't lead you anywhere, that care about themselves, that care about their own teaching, that care about their own desires, or the one who says, I've got 10,000 angels ready to enact judgment on those who reject me and reject my church. That's really the question we have to answer, isn't it? Who will we submit our lives to? Ourselves? Our own authority? Or the Lord of the universe? The maker, the creator? The one who will execute judgment and convict the ungodly of their deeds? the one who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, that if we but trust in him, repent of our sin, turn from our ways, we can have life, we can have a shepherd who does shepherd his sheep, we can have direction, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, I hide its truth in my heart that I might not sin against God. You don't have to wander, dear Christian. You don't have to wander today. If you trust in the one who is true and who is good, that is the Lord. Reject false teaching. Reject false teachers. Don't be afraid of them, but be very wary of their message. And if you ever wonder, if you you ever find yourself asking, is what I'm being told true and good and right? Just check it with the answer key. It's really that simple. Go and look. Is it here? Is it from God? Is it what he says? Is it what he promises? Or find someone. Talk to someone about it. And if it's not, be careful about it. But if it is, hold on to it for dear life. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. Lord, there's a lot of teaching. There's a lot of views There's a lot of things being promoted in this world that are just simply false. We know they're false because as we study your word, they are are proven to be false. Lord, there are many teachers who promote these things in this world today, who seek to corrupt our children, who seek to ruin things you have declared good. Father, would you continue to take 
care of your people. Lord, we need a shepherd, not a false shepherd. We need a true shepherd, and we have that shepherd in Christ. We need a path, not an easy path that leads to destruction, but a path that leads to eternal life, and we have that in Jesus Christ. Lord, we need the truth, not false truth, not error claiming to be truth, but we need truth. We have that in Jesus Christ. Lord, we need an authority over us, one to tell us what to do, what not to do, what is good, what is right. Not someone that's doing it for their own gain, their own motives, but someone that's doing it because they love us. Someone willing to correct us at times when we're wrong. Someone willing to forgive us when we fall. And someone willing to walk beside us through the trials, through the struggles, through the difficulties. Lord, there are false teachers in this world, and that is true, and this passage warns against it. But I am far more thankful that there is also a Savior. Thank you for your work. Thank you for that which you continue to do. Protect your church. Protect your people. Watch over us all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.